core emotions are first and foremost physical experiences. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Hilary Jacobs Hendel, a psychotherapist who switched from practicing traditional talk psychotherapy to accelerated experimental dynamic psychotherapy. She teaches us that our core emotions like joy, anger, sadness, fear, and excitement are automatic and universal physical experiences, which is firmly grounded in neuroscience. Her new book is It's Not Always Depression, which was the award winner of the 2018 Best Book Award for Psychology and Mental Health, as sponsored by the American Book Fest. Hi, Hillary. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you about your book called It's Not Always Depression, Working the Change Triangle to Listen to the Body, Discover Core Emotions, and Connect to Your Authentic Self. But before we get into the book, let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his granddaughter, and he says, In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at her grandfather. And she says, Well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, it means a lot, right? There's so many themes in that parable that feel very important. I guess what it brings up for me is this idea, well, one, in terms of being a therapist, the brain learns by what you repeat over and over again. So on the one way, you know, on the one hand, feeding the attributes that you want by practicing them over and over again, by training your thoughts to be kind as opposed to being greedy. To me, the parable is just in any way, shape, or form that you can, focusing and practicing behaviors, thoughts that turn your mind in the direction that you want it to go. So that's one way. So the other thing that the parable brings to mind, because I'm um, an emotion-focused psychotherapist, uh, is really what are the ways that cultivate goodness in humans? And so besides, you know, more like CBT therapists would think about directing the mind and learning, right? We're talking about 
directing the mind and honing in on ways that you want to cultivate the other way to cultivate goodness and kindness and love is through empathy and connection and expression of one's core emotions, even when those emotions are emotions like anger. And that by moving through those emotions, as opposed to blocking them, I believe people are good at the basic core. And by cultivating healthy, regulated states of mind, right, this is the sort of the biology of it, we get to more in in the good wolf's directions, in the good wolf's intentions. In the title, you talk about connecting to your authentic self. And, you know, I think that's kind of what, what you're pointing at here is that authentic self has lots of really good qualities. You mentioned that it has seven C's. Um, so maybe let's start there, because the goal of working the change triangle, and we'll talk about what that is here in a second, is to get us to our authentic self and these seven C's. So maybe you could talk about what they are. That's a great idea. So the idea behind this is, again, this goes back to effective neuroscience, really the science of emotions and the biology of emotions. And what happens when the the mind, brain, and body is calm, meaning that it's not in a hyper-aroused state or not in a hypo-aroused state. It's in an optimal homeostatic state that when we are regulated, we are calm in mind and body. We feel connected We have the capacity for compassion towards ourselves and to others. We have the capacity for curiosity. We are more creative. We are clear in thoughts. And as a result, we tend to feel more confident about ourselves. And this is a state that is called core state in the type of therapy I practice. And I've called it open-hearted state. Uh, in regards to the change triangle, but it's a state that we all feel good in. We all want to spend as much time in that state as possible. It's where good things happen and where we can think and feel and connect and relate to others all at the same time. Yep. And so maybe real quick, I'll just describe to listeners the change triangle real quick, my understanding, and then you can sort of add to it. But listeners, if you think of a triangle, an inverted triangle, at the bottom are our core emotions, which when we experience authentically leads us to that authentic self. And then in the upper left, we have um, defenses that tend to block us from our core emotions. And in the upper right, we have uh, emotions that are considered inhibitory. And so the goal of working the change triangle is to get past the defenses, get past the inhibitory emotions. I can't say that word very well and get to our core emotions. So is there anything you want to add to that basic idea? Um, I'm just trying to sort of put a picture in listeners' heads real quick. Yeah, that was a great concise description, much better than I could do. But the only thing I would add is that if you imagine that this upside down triangle is superimposed on, um, on all of your bodies out there. And the the point of the triangle would be somewhere around your belly button in your body. And that's to remind us that core emotions, and I'm just going to tell the listeners what the core emotions are. So they're not in suspense. It's fear, anger, sadness, disgust, joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. And what makes those core is that we're born with them pre-wired and those are what help us survive in the world. They're like a compass for what's good for us and what's bad for us. So they're in the body and then the triangle extends up. You can sort of imagine it coming up just uh, around the level of your head and shoulders. And yes, we wanna get from the top of the triangle down to the bottom where the core emotions live because the core emotions are the doorway to this open-hearted state. And they're also the doorway to going up the triangle into more defensive and disconnected states. That's a great description, particularly the where it uh, sits on the body. I didn't think I quite picked that part up. But let's talk a little bit about inhibitory emotions for a moment. So you talked about what the core emotions are. These are the core states. And there's a little bit of uh, debate in the community about what exactly all the core emotions are. But you've named, you know, pretty much everybody agrees with, with those 
basic ideas. What are inhibitory emotions? Well, those are emotions that we need to keep us connected to each other, to keep us civilized and working together, uh, because humans do better when they work together. So if the core emotions are kind of what's good for me, the inhibitory emotions are designed by nature to be what is good for the group. And therefore, there's constant kind of polarity or conflict between our core emotions and what is good for the group. So we have these three inhibitory emotions, which act to kind of squash or push down the core emotions. So for example, and the inhibitory emotions are, as you mentioned, anxiety, guilt, and shame, those three. And they, they all work in the same way, not the exact same way physiologically, but they all dampen core emotional experience. So for example, we all know the feeling of being ashamed. It's it's excruciating, right? Where you just want to hide and disappear. And so I don't, and I think most listeners, most people in the world can relate to this idea of being in a sort of an open, vulnerable, excited state. And then all of a sudden, let's say we're little and, you know, we're, you're running with open arms to your parent, full of vitality and excitement. And I really think of parents for the most part as trying to do the right thing. And the intention is not to hurt children, but this is just an example of how shame works. So in a moment of kind of energy coming out and uh, vitality, a parent might say, uh, what are you so excited about? Or you know, one of your friends might look at you at the wrong way, like you're weird or something. And then all of a sudden you have this excruciating experience of wanting to withdraw inward. That's right there where you can see that moment when the, when a core feeling is coming up and out and this response from someone else makes the core emotion recede and the kind of the whole self recede inward and, you know, creating this pretty big internal conflict. Because core emotions want to, they need expression, they have energy upwards, and they want to come out, um, and they want to be shared. And the inhibitory emotions are all about the opposite. It's about keeping them in, in a variety of different ways. And you say that, um, you know, these inhibitory emotions help keep us connected to others, to our parents, primary caregivers, peer groups, schools, etc. But that they have a cost. And the cost is that our emotional energy gets trapped. So if those inhibitory emotions are what dominates the scene, I guess, right, then those core emotions don't ever get expressed or felt or dealt with. That's exactly right. Exactly. And you lose a sense of feeling connected to yourself. You can feel disembodied or too much in your head. But that's exactly right. And the inhibitory emotions we need, you know, they civilize us so that we all function. It's really when the amounts of them are too much that that people start to really suffer chronically and um, and and then start to rely on using defenses, which I'm defining on the change triangle as anything we do to avoid feeling pain or discomfort, emotional pain or discomfort. So if we're spending too much time on the top of the triangle in anxiety, guilt, and shame and defenses, that's when those are the symptoms that like depression and chronic anxiety and all the many of the diagnoses in the DSM-5, that's what people come into my office experiencing. And so let's talk about the difference between defenses and I cannot say that word, <laughs> inhibitory <laughs> emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the difference between defenses and, and those? That's a great question. Someone asked me this the other day too. In a way, they're the same thing. I just treat them differently. because They're, they're both taking us away from our core authentic experience and our core feelings. But the reason that I differentiate inhibitory emotions in defenses is because we would work with them differently to help ourselves feel better. And anxiety, guilt, and shame are very specific, uh, effective states that we can have a number of techniques that I try to share in my work to feel better. The defenses are when you're just doing these kind of unconscious protective maneuvers that you don't even know that you're doing that are a way to just 
protect us from feeling pain or discomfort or awkwardness, um, a variety of, of different experiences, physical and emotional. Yeah, I think the thing that struck me was that um, defenses guard you against both the core emotions and the inhibitory emotions. So we can use a defense because the inhibitory emotions are uncomfortable too: guilt, shame, anxiety. And so we use it as a way not to even get that far into the process. Exactly. Well said. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to work the change triangle. You use that phrase often to work the change triangle. So what does that look like in practice? The idea behind this is that this was a tool that I was taught in my training that is used by psychotherapists that practice experiential psychotherapy, which there are a variety of different types. And I was teaching this triangle to my patients and they were using it and I'm using it practically on a daily basis. My colleagues are using it, my friends and families who I taught it to. And I really just uh, thought for years that this is a great public health self-help tool. And so the idea of working the change triangle is on a daily basis, whenever you notice that you are in some sort of distress or uh, whenever you are being told, let's say, in your, by your people you feel close to that you're behaving badly or that you're doing things that are disrupting your relationships, whether it's in work or whether it's in love and romance, that there's this guide or a map or a tool, whatever you want to call it, that gives us a path to feeling better. And we can use it on our own as a self-help tool, and we can also use it in conjunction with psychotherapy or coaching when we get stuck and when we need somebody else to kind of guide us or to be with us while we experience um, painful emotions. Because we're wired for connection. So depending on how much pain and trauma there was, uh, we're going to need somebody else to guide us. But for everyday kind of use and direction, on how to feel better. The change triangle is just, it's a great tool. So you brought up the, the trauma word and in the book you refer to small T trauma and big T trauma. And I was wondering if you could share with us uh, from your perspective, what the difference between those two is. Yes. So first I want to just say unequivocally that trauma is trauma. So I don't want anyone to feel that one trauma is more important than another trauma, but there are when we hear the word trauma, we are all slightly educated to know that that a trauma is a, a catastrophic event that in one moment can really change your, your brain and affect how you feel. And you can develop symptoms like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression, anxiety, and various other things from a catastrophic event like war or um, being a victim of a, of a crime or overt abuse and neglect. But there's a whole other type of trauma that is largely invisible. And it's, those are what I'm calling small T traumas. And it's so important that everybody that knows about these types of traumas, so that we don't feel crazy when we're not, that there's a reason for our suffering. And the type of traumas that are everything else are are anything from, well, let's just take the obvious, like divorce or death, which could be a large T trauma too, depending on, uh, there's no, there's sort of no fine line delineation. Um, it's sort of a, how you feel that you want to categorize it. But small T traumas would be like moving, would be divorced parents, would be like gay, being gay and coming out in a, in a community where you don't have a lot of support or transgender it would be uh, being in a peer group where you are different than most people for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're not good in sports and you go to a school where that's what's valued. Uh, you could just be from being bullied a few times or from being a different color than most of the people in your neighborhood or community. So all these these ways where anxiety and fear and lots of emotions would be evoked, including shame, are evoked, and there's not enough support to help a child or teenager kind of metabolize what's happening to them, and there, or there's no language to describe what's happening to you, can create a situation where you have lots of emotions that are being triggered, 
naturally the way they're supposed to do and not a lot of support. So then we have to start using our defenses or inhibitory emotions to squash them down because there's nobody there to receive them and to validate them and make us feel okay. changing faster and faster today and there's so much uncertainty and one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly and the best way I found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet or your web browser and basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need to know information from over 3,000 non-fiction bestsellers. They condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about this idea of working with emotions in a way that allows us to experience them. So what are some of the ways that, um, let's say we're, we recognize the, the guilt, the shame, um, the anxiety that we talked about, the inhibitory mm-hmm. emotions, what's the process of, of starting to look at those, examine those and, and work through those so that then we can get to the core emotion. So what does that process of moving down the change triangle from uh, the inhibitory emotions down to the core emotions? Yeah. So the first thing that we want to do is be able to recognize which corner of the triangle that we are on. So if you imagine like, um, you know, in, in, again, I'll use myself as an example going uh, on in daily life, let's say, and I live in New York city and somebody, you know, knocks into me. Right. And I feel this, I was kind of feeling pretty good. I, I was pretty calm. And then all of a sudden I am jolted into a state of agitation. So now I, I am recognizing that my state has radically altered and I don't feel good anymore. And uh, I want to work on that. So I will visualize the triangle and I will try to name, am I, am I on the, the top left corner where I am feeling defensive? So the way that I might recognize that is I feel like, uh, 
well, I would have to sort of use a different example for this, but uh, well, no, let's say that um, instead of uh, feeling this agitated feeling, I kind of numb out and all of a sudden I am like out of body, for example, that would be an example of a defense. So I might recognize that I'm on the defensive corner. I might feel like I want to have a drink right now. That would be a defense against feeling my feelings. Um, I might start muttering all sorts of curses and thinking, gosh, I hate everybody in the whole world, not this particular person. That would be an example of a defense. So I might be on the defensive corner. I might, on the other hand, I'm trying to figure out if I am feeling anxiety, shame, guilt, experiencing one of the core emotions on the bottom. So first I would have this visual in my mind, or some people carry the change triangle with them and put it in their pocket and they look at the diagram or they call it up on, on their iPhone or something like that. So you want to really identify where you are. And then once you know what corner you are on, then you know you have to work clockwise to get down to the bottom. So if you're in the defensive corner, you want to reach for the emotions underneath them. And if you're in anxiety, guilt, and shame, you want to look for the core emotions. So we're always trying to get down to core emotions. So if we go back to the example, somebody knocks into me, and now I'm pretty good at working this change triangle, I will immediately run through all the core emotions and ask myself, am I afraid? Okay, no, I'm not afraid. This was not a threat. Am I angry? Yes, I am very angry. Am I sad? Not really. Am I disgusted? Yeah, I'm kind of disgusted that this person wasn't watching where they were going and, uh, and hurt me. Am I joyous? No. Am I excited? No. Am I sexually excited? No. So I'll run through and then I will pretty much validate that I am angry and I am disgusted. So I talk a lot about that you you want to find all the emotions you have and separate them by an and as opposed to a but. So we want to sort of hold all the emotions that we have in our mind, kind of imagining them separately with lots of space and air around each one, because each core emotion has a different program associated with it that we're going to want to be with one at a time. And sometimes just knowing what your core emotions are and naming them and validating them in your mind helps tremendously just calm down, especially if you're anxious and agitated. Naming your core emotions, it's amazing. It really does the trick. And that's something about how the, uh, the left brain and the right brain, we want to put language on experience and that calms down our brain. And there's science that validates that. But it also, it happens, you know, the phenomenology, meaning when you practice this change triangle, it, it works. And it's a practice over a lifetime. You get better and better at it. And it's, a, and it's really a journey to knowing yourself. So once you've got your core emotions, then you can work with them one at a time to process them in, 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 in any number of ways that I, that I go through in, in my book, which is detailing all of this, to get down to a calm state. And sometimes you can do it right away, and sometimes it takes some time, and sometimes you're going to bring in some other techniques or skills that you've learned to, to feel better. But that's, that's the general idea is to know where you are in the change triangle and then get to the next place on it. And the idea is if we experience and feel and process those core emotions, we come out the other side into uh, our open-hearted self, our authentic self, those seven C's. So a, a word that's often used, you've got a lot of examples in the book of working with clients, is they go into the core emotion, they experience it, they go through it, and then they come out, and what they word they often use is calm. I feel calm now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had this experience over and over where I've been willing to really feel what's happening. And, um, you know, the, the example I use most often is because they're relatively recent. I had to put two dogs to sleep not too long ago. Um, yeah. not, not at the same time, thank God. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but what I realized was I just, for whatever reason, was able to allow myself just to grieve, just to be sad. And it would feel overwhelming. It would sort of come on and it would be overwhelming. But I'd go through it and it would pass, and I would then come out the other side with calm, clear, you know, some of the C's that you talk about. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of the idea here is that, that when we allow the emotion to happen and we process it, and then we get to the other side. And in some cases, as you've said, sometimes these emotions are so strong and so overwhelming, we really need to do this with someone, mm -hmm. right? But a thing that you mention often in the book, and um, 
I've been thinking a lot about is that we can often be that support for ourselves. You use the idea you mentioned a minute ago about having multiple emotions. You also talk about having multiple parts. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm experiencing something. There might be a part of me that feels like it's a child that's going through this, but but then the adult part of me here is also, is also here. And so I can sort of use those two parts, the one to calm and soothe the other and help process those emotions. So again, sometimes we can do it ourselves. Other times it's too overwhelming and we need others. But the goal is to allow that emotion to have its, I guess, moment in the sun, for lack of a better word. Exactly. Exactly. To get some air to come up and be recognized. Exactly. So let's talk about anxiety because anxiety is one of the, I keep having to say this word that I hate saying, inhibitory emotions. You got it. I guess I got it, but I struggle with it every time. Anxiety is one of those. Um, Anxiety also feels like fear. So let's talk for a moment about if we recognize it's anxiety and we realize that that's probably a cover for something else. How do we work through that anxiety to try to get to the point where we can start to understand what the core emotion is or what are some tools we can use the trick is to figure out is it fear is it anxiety excitement also can feel like anxiety so when you're feeling anxious there's a number of things that you can do the first thing that i do is i just reach right there for the core emotions and you'd be surprised what you can do if you just sort of imagine like for me it's like going through the anxiety going down if you if we were together you could see me i'm kind of moving my hand down so it's you you want to go into your body and again see if you can just name am i sad am i scared am i angry am i excited uh, even joy can cause anxiety if somebody wasn't allowed to show joy as a child. So we learn to block uh, certain core emotions depending on how our family felt about them. But we can also do things to to calm and and what's called in the jargon to regulate anxiety. Uh, one of the things that I do with uh, all my patients when they start working with me is teaching them how to ground their feet on the floor and learn how to deep belly breathe. And these two things, I remember when I was younger and people said to to breathe, I would be so irritable and I'd be like, don't tell me to breathe. <laughs> it's like, that does nothing. And the idea of grounding, it took me a while, you know, when, when I was training and therapist would say, you know, just feel your feet on the floor. And I would go through the motions, but I really wouldn't understand. But grounding and breathing are the two most powerful things. And they, they take practice. And basically, uh, it's the idea of no matter, I think when we're anxious, we go up in our heads automatically and we can start to swirl around and the idea is to get out of your head and come back into your body and a safe place in your body, which immediately is, is someplace, you know, peripheral, right? Sometimes we can, if we go, if we focus on what's happening in our core, it can be overwhelming. So just this idea of trying to sense the ground with the soles of your feet and feel the full weight of yourself, uh, kind of the gravitational pull down so that you're, the idea is to feel very rooted but it's the, also the idea is to let yourself slow way down. It's to take a, a moment to pause and start to breathe deeply and just feel your feet on the ground, as simple as that is. That is the technique. And just to stay there for what feels like an eternity, but maybe 20 seconds. And it takes time to really slow everything down. Once I would say take four, five, six deep belly breaths and you're feeling your feet on the ground at the same time, you'll start to notice shifts internally and things may feel a little bit calmer or actually core emotions may start to come up and you may begin to sense that you're really angry or you're really sad or you're frightened. So it's really calming the anxiety down with these techniques and then making some active attention to what is happening in the body, which is how we really learn to recognize what feelings we're having. That core emotions are first and foremost physical experiences. 
they get triggered in the middle of the brain, but then the middle of the brain sends signals down through the major nerves of the body, like the vagus nerve, and they start to activate the body because the purpose of core emotions is to ready us for uh, action. And that action is meant by nature to be adaptive, meaning if you're frightened, your body gets you ready to run. And if you're, if you're being attacked, your body gets you ready to fight those type of things. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into making sure that one can escape danger and survive. And so emotions are largely physical experiences. Most, we don't know that it's like learning a new language and slowing down and tuning into the body and starting to recognize physical sensation. But sure enough, like learning a new language, like Japanese, uh, as you practice, there's a whole world going on below the neck that most of us never even touch in our lifetime because we're all sort of in our heads thinking, which is what our society prioritizes. Yeah, there's another uh, exercise you have that I think is so helpful. You call it consciously looking out. I've heard it described as grounding yourself in your senses. Um, but the idea is, you know, my version of it is to stop and say, all right, let me think of three things that I can see. Mm-hmm. Let me think of three things that I can hear. Let me think of three things that I can feel, um, you know, physically like a backpack on my shoulder or the, you know, my feet on the ground or any of those things. Um, you recommend doing it, um, you know, colors, different things, but that's another way of grounding ourselves is to come back to right now. And, you know, that phrase is always so nebulous, like be present. And I'm, you know, my experience is always like, okay, I'm present. And then I'm gone in a 10th of a second. But that activity actually allows me, gives me a, a scaffolding to remain present. Exactly. Right. That's a, that's an excellent thing to do. To, to get you into the present moment so that you can then begin to slow. Again, slowing down is the key to noticing emotions because the mind is working so fast. But for the, the, the emotions in the body to become evident, it's almost like when you're driving into a fog and then all of a sudden uh, you get closer to something and it begins to come into focus. So you have to be patient, very patient, very compassionate, non-judgmental stance towards yourself as you tune inside. I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate, chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified, they're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. And you say that just the act of naming and validating our emotions helps our bodies and minds relax. And it's a key part of working the change triangle. So, you know, naming, validating our emotions. You also talk an awful lot about looking inside the body for sensations because those are often clues to emotion. Exactly. That emotions are really physical sensations. And so to process an emotion begins with naming it. So putting the beginning of processing emotion is, first of all, knowing what emotion that you're having, being able to put a word on it, knowing, 
being able to sense where you feel it in the body. So for example, if I'm sad, I tend to feel heavy in my chest and feel the impulse around my eyes to cry. If I'm angry, you know, there's a lot of energy that's coming up through my core. I'll start to make a fist. My jaw will get tight. So we all experience in some similar ways, but in some very unique in, uh, ways for each individual to begin to get very accustomed to how they experience the core emotions. So naming, being able to sense it in your body, and then all core emotions have inherent impulses with them. So you want to be, be able to tune in and stay with the sensations until the impulse manifests. And when you can name an emotion, know how you, where you feel it in the body and tolerate that feeling and stay with the impulse, you're on your way to being able to fully process, process that emotion. To take it all the way there, we can either stay with the sensation and ride the wave because core emotions have these wave-like qualities. So we can just do it. Sometimes I'll tell a patient to just drop the emotion, drop the storyline in their head and just stay with the sensation uh, and just let it crescendo. And then eventually, usually takes no longer than one, one and a half, two minutes, it'll start to resolve. Um, you can also use fantasy to enact the impulses and discharge the energy of an emotion that way to get back to this calm state, back to the open-hearted state. There was something you said that really struck me because you, you said that, um, Emotions can be amplified in response to something internal or external. And it's this next line that really hit me. Self-judgment and self-criticism are internal amplifiers. And I think that's interesting. I also have noticed, at least for me, that those are immediate ways to hop right out of the emotion and back into the defense corner of the triangle. So talk to me just about self-criticism and self-judgment. Yeah. So it's so important to be able to start to notice the ways that we talk to ourselves. And just imagine that instead of to yourself, you're relating to a young child and a child who is having a feeling, whether it's joy and excitement on the kind of positive, what people think of as positive feelings or fear or anger. If you tell that kid, oh, you're such a, you know, you're terrible or what's wrong with you? And you just imagine how that kid is going to react. It, it's going to create shame. It's going to create anxiety. And the kid is going to withdraw. And so if you just imagine that kid is now inside you, that's what happens when we judge ourselves. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to amplify feelings of shame, and which is going to amplify feelings of anxiety. And then we're going to need to move over to defenses or to do something to stop the building pain or feelings that you're disappearing or annihilating. People have all these um, strange, affective experiences that are excruciating that we have to halt with defenses such as drugs, such as massive amounts of avoidance, dissociating, disconnecting out-of-body experiences on the extreme side, and then just you know tuning out, staring into our cell phones, those type of things. Yeah, I feel like I've quoted this about 30 times on the show lately. This is an exaggeration, but there's a spiritual teacher I admire named Adi Ashanti, and he says that the surest way to shut down consciousness is judgment. Judgment is the fastest thing to just shut down whatever is, is going on, and that really has struck me as being a true statement. And I think self-criticism and self-judgment are just, are just variations on that. Yeah, you're exactly right. It really doesn't, it doesn't do anything positive. And I consider judgment a defense on the, on the top left corner of the change triangle, especially when you're relating to other people. And just to begin to get very curious about when, when you notice you're judging somebody, what is the underlying core emotion? Again, am I frightened of this difference? Um, what does it bring up in me? Does it bring up shame that I need to now discharge this feeling by judging somebody else? Which is different than I believe you can have opinions. I have very strong opinions. Uh, but the idea of really a judgment is sort of, by definition, like kind of a way to discount somebody's humanity or humanness for because you're uncomfortable with something that they are or that they're saying. And I want to read something else that you wrote about using emotional skills or emotional regulations, ways to calm ourselves. And, and you say, picture a secure and calm parent comforting an upset child. This caregiver has essential knowledge that the child lacks. 
Number one, emotions are temporary. Number two, emotions don't kill us. And number three, having a calm and available caregiver helps us move through our emotions. And I just think that's such a great, again, it's depending on the strength of our emotion, it's great to have an external caregiver that can do that for us, whether it be a therapist or a good friend. But those are useful things to remind ourselves as we work through our own emotions that they're temporary, they don't kill us and that we can work to soothe ourselves in a way that we can work through those emotions. Exactly. That I like to say that we're one of the goals is to become our own good parent, even if we didn't have a good parent, that we have to cultivate those qualities uh, inside us so that we can relate to the various parts of ourselves, young parts or wounded parts, and our emotions in a loving way so we can move through them and they don't get stuck and then create havoc, all sorts of pain and symptoms and distress. Yeah. That idea of, um, the way we talk to ourselves, you know, the analogy of, you know, talk to yourself as a good parent would to a child, or, you know, I've heard people say, you know, have compassion for yourself. Imagine, you know, an, a, a wounded animal or, you know, one that I use, maybe my favorite is imagine how a, you, you'd talk to a good friend, but I'm more and more struck by how many of us have really awful internal conversations with ourselves and how damaging that really is and what a a big change it can make when we're able to catch that and and turn it around into, you know, being a uh, friendly and hospitable place to inhabit our own self. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's so important. And it's also so interesting that um, so many people feel that those internal voices are actually helping them, that they drive them to be more successful, or they drive them to even just get out of the house in the morning or to strive to be more perfect. And the way that I usually sort of assuage people that say that is one, we're not in the business of getting rid of those parts of yourself. So if you want to call in your judgmental parts again, you know, you can do that. But, but that I don't, I say, I hold the belief that I don't think that's true, that when they feel calm, they'll actually what'll happen is their, their natural human drive to go out into the world and to create and to work and to connect will, will take over and they're not going to need to berate themselves or judge themselves to do that. Right. I think we have this sense, like if we don't have that harsh critical voice, then, you know, it's either that or it's just, you know, complete, um, anarchy and we just, you know, let ourselves do whatever we want, right? We have a tendency to to go to extremes. And that's why I think like imagining how a good friend would talk to me. Like if I went to a good friend and said, Hey, I really want to quit smoking. Right. And And I could use your help. And if I smoked, right, I could think about how a good friend would talk to me. They would, they would sort of, uh, reassure me, calm me, but they also wouldn't, completely let me off the hook. A good friend wouldn't be like, oh, whatever, who cares? It doesn't even matter, right? There'd be a, there'd be a kindness and a love and a guidance, you know, back towards what I want. And, you know, I just found that works so much for me. Um, the second time I got sober, I realized that things started to change when I moved out of being so angry at myself that I was drinking again. Um, you know, cause I was like, you idiot, you know, what's going to happen. Right. And when I moved out of that, you know, it wasn't too long after that, that things really started to change. I'm curious to hear a little bit more, Eric. Do you know what the voice shifted to from, from being as harsh to not to put you on the spot? I was just curious. Yeah. Cause that's so great. I think it's kind of like we said, like a, like a friend would, would mm-hmm. talk to myself like, yeah, you know, this isn't, you know, this is bad. This is hard. You know, this is really a struggle. Um, recognizing that I was drinking for a reason, you know, that like there was something else going on, that there were emotions there, just sort of working to um, be kind of kinder to myself, but still not letting myself off the hook, not being like, oh, it doesn't matter. It mattered. But there was just a change in the internal tone Yeah. from sort of shaming and berating myself to maybe encouraging myself in some way, but also validating like, okay, you know, there's, there's a reason you, you drink, you know, um, and that it's really difficult, you know, that I'm an alcoholic, that that's, you know, that I'm not a failure. I'm not an awful person. It began the process, I think, of me being more open to getting sober again. It, it allowed me to make some movement towards it that I was stuck in before that. Yeah. So important. Yeah. 
That's great. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we we get this idea of like, well, if I talk to myself like a friend, like that's lovely. Like that sounds really nice and it certainly is a better way to go. But the amazing thing is not only is it nice and lovely and a better way to go, it's far more effective. Yeah. You know, it really is the more effective way to go to, to sort of take that role of a, of a good friend versus, you know, uh, comes to my mind, a punishing parent, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. And now that you're talking, I think in a way it's a good, it delineates the difference between kind of healthy shame and toxic shame. So, you know, a parent will need to teach their kid that it's not okay to run naked in the streets and that you have to be quiet in a library. And that's, you know, by shushing and that invokes some, some shame in the same way that when we are self-destructive, we want a certain amount of of shame to kick in that's healthy, that says, you know what, this is not good for us. We want to live and we want to thrive, uh, as opposed to being so harsh that you're diminishing, you're cutting them down and cutting down the self at the same time, which is never good. We want to, we want to help people rise and support and, um, and learn to love themselves by being, by being loving and caring. Exactly. Well, we are at the end of our time here. Um, what? I know. Fast. It's, it's, <laughs> I know. I know. But Crystal, Crystal cut us off here. Um, I always joke about that. But um, yeah, we're at the end of our time. But you and I are going to continue the conversation in our post-show conversation. And we're actually going to go deeper into shame, healthy shame, toxic shame, what to do with it. Because it is something that is so common and prevalent and destructive. So you and I are going to talk more about that there. Listeners, if you're interested in the post-show conversations, you can get access to all of them, as well as ad-free episodes by going to oneyoufeed.net slash support. And um, Hillary, thank you so much. In the show notes, we will have links to your book, to your website, to your social media things, lots of ways that people can interact with you. And, and I really encourage listeners to do that because it's, it's great stuff. So thank you so much. Thank you. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.